It's time for Growing Your Collaborative Practice, the marketing podcast for collaborative professionals. In Joran Jenkins' 40-year-plus career, she's published nine books, taught multiple law subjects at Stetson University College of Law, and established her own collaborative family law practice. Joran began her 40-year-plus career as a trial lawyer. Then she discovered a kinder, gentler alternative to courtroom divorce. She soon realized that too many dedicated professionals, while being great advocates for their clients, were not advocating for themselves and were therefore not reaching new clients or their full potentials. This podcast will explore Jorn's five fortes of marketing and will feature conversations with other professionals about what works in their practices. Together, we can change the way the world gets divorced. Here's your host, author, professor, and collaborative attorney, Jorn Jenkins, to teach you how she is changing the way the world gets divorced and how you can too. Hi there, this is Jorn Jenkins. I'm your marketing coach. I want to talk to you today about uh, the second forte in the marketing fortes is publish. You may not really get immediately why publishing is so critical to marketing. Um, but it's really all about credibility. Do you have authority in your industry? Do you have people who perceive you to be an expert? Um, Maybe you're a student and you don't yet know, but you're leaning towards things, and so you'll have to have this in the back of your mind as well. Uh, Even if you're not yet perceived to be an expert, you may want to work towards becoming that person the person who who has the right answers about a certain area of practice. So think think back to your own list of um, what we like to call influencers. Um, In the collaborative arena, they might be uh, collaborative champions. In the um, lawyers' spheres, they may be, uh, we call them rainmakers. Are they published? They probably are. One, One way or another, credibility is the ability to write clear and compelling blogs, articles, tweets today, books. It always used to be books and articles that people will read, uh, relate to, and share with others. So the next critical step in the process of consciously becoming a collaborative champion, a legal influencer, is to hone your publishing Publishing your ideas in blogs, articles, papers, books communicates some important and necessary messages about who you are and where your passion lies. It says that you have insights into your subject matter that are worth documenting. Publishing communicates your credibility. Without credibility, you won't be able to achieve your vision. And conversely, a person with high credibility doesn't need to say nearly as much But what they do say carries a great deal of weight. So I was headed to court one day to testify as an expert, and actually I was going to be qualified as an expert in ethics, which has happened several times in my career. And I showed up outside the courtroom, and the guy on the other side, the lawyer who, to my way of thinking, had made a... Um, a mistake. He was, uh, there was a conflict of interest and he was representing someone that I didn't think he should be representing. I wasn't the lawyer on the other side. The lawyer on the other side had consulted with me, asked me for my expert opinion, and uh, never apparently told 
um, this guy that I would be appearing in one of the preliminary hearings to talk about what he thought he was able to do. And I showed up, I'm standing outside the courtroom and he walks up to me. And I knew him. I perceived him to be a, a fairly good attorney, highly recommended in the community, highly perceived. And he walked up to me and he said, Joran, are you the expert in this case? Are you the expert for the other party? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, so you don't think that I should be representing my client. You think that I have a conflict of interest. And I said, yes, I do. And he walked into the courtroom and he told the judge that he was withdrawing. I have to say that I was shocked. But when I talked to him later, he said he hadn't known that I had been hired, which, you know, you, you would think the other side would have warned him. Um, but I wasn't the lawyer for the other side, so that wasn't my decision to make. And he said that, you know, one reason that he valued my opinion so much was because that I had been published so often in this arena, in the professional malpractice and legal ethics uh, arena. So publishing carries a lot of weight, so much so that you will be perceived as the expert if you publish. Madison and I have talked about this. So I have Madison here in the room with me, Madison Sasser. She's uh, one of the interns in my law practice. Um, she's been with me for, gosh, five months now? Four to five. I started at the beginning of May. So you and I are doing a lot of our blogging together. You've been very helpful in uh, getting my, my stuff ready for submission. And one of the things we've talked about is the, um, the editing process because, you know, there's a lot to publication. There's just a lot there. It's not just getting your ideas down on paper, and it's not just discussing what's new on the horizon, what's, you know, what's everybody else talking about, but it's also coming up with your own ideas. It's also, I think, and this is, this is one of uh, Joran's, you know, my, my little idiosyncrasies, I think <laughs> being a good editor is uh, critical. And if you're not a good editor and you know that, I mean, find out and find someone who can help you with that as a good editor. I was editor-in-chief of the Federal Lawyer magazine. I took it from um, what it used to be to what it is today, a, a truly readable magazine. It was not a really readable magazine when I took it over. So I know what good editing looks like, and I try to help my my staff with that all the time because I think it's critical. So wherever you are, find someone who can help you with uh, editing your your work as far as that goes. My creative writing teacher in high school said this thing to me that I still remember. She said, be the editor that your work deserves. <gasps> That's lovely. Because I just put all my ideas on paper and they were so good, but they were so poorly edited and written and the f it just wasn't there. Well, you know, part of the problem with that is, say it's someone who mm -hmm. lives down the street from you and they're reading your stuff they're going to appreciate it with the way it is. They come from the same background. They speak English the same way, or they speak whatever language the same way. They may have colloquialisms in their dialect that are the same as yours. But when you're writing for a broader audience, and let us not forget that today's world, you're writing for the world. If you blog, the whole world has access to your blog. And so you really want to write in such a way that it makes your ideas accessible. I tell my staff, don't ever use block letters. I mean, seriously, 
there's rarely, rarely a reason to use block letters. When I want to emphasize something, I use italics. I don't like underlines. Those kind of things are pet peeves for me, more pet peeves, I'm sorry, (laughs) because they slow the reader down. You don't want your reader slowed down. You want to make your work accessible, your ideas accessible. Typos will slow your reader down. How many times have I gone to Amazon? This happened last night and read a review, and one of the reviews said, you know, there were missing words, and I had to figure out what words were in a book, in a book. So I didn't buy that book. I don't need that. I don't need to be slowed down in my reading. And if you don't care enough about your stuff to make sure that it's edited properly, then I don't care about it either. So you have to worry about readers like me. It's interesting that you say it slows the reader down. Because I've found that when I learned to edit, I've made my words more precise. Because recently we had a problem where I started using passive language. Yeah. And I noticed when I cut it out, I cut out so many extra words. Right. That made it so much easier to read. Right. Yeah, you're exactly right. And don't I say, I think I was talking to Austin, uh, the other intern, yesterday, I think. And I had edited a piece, a a legal piece that uh, he had written for for the office. So it wasn't something for publication, but I wanted it readable because it's an argumentative piece. I'm trying to convince a judge of something. And so I cut out a lot of the extra words. When you're writing legal stuff, and by the way, I highly recommend if you want to make your writing better, then get yourself access to a guy named Brian Garner. B-R-Y-A-N Garner, G-A-R-N-E-R. He is amazing, and he publishes a blog pretty much once a week. All you have to do is sign up for it. It's not long. It's very readable. It's very accessible. And he's usually talking about common um, grammatical mistakes. The guy has argued cases in, you know, the the Supreme Court. Um, He was friends with Scalia. He was friends with RBG. Ginsburg. He's amazingly readable and he makes good points. I went to his all-day course on writing appellate briefs and I own many of his books. So I, I highly recommend him just so that you get a feel for you know what, what you're looking for in, in good writing, in, in accessible writing. But I had edited Austin's piece and I cut maybe two pages out of ten just by looking for passive voice and common mistakes like that. You don't want to use passive voice. I mean, sometimes occasionally in fiction you'll use passive voice, but it's rarely useful to make your point, especially if you're trying to make a strong point, especially if you're trying to make an argument. I would argue that even though legal writing isn't like marketing that you're publishing, it's still part of your profile. Right. And profile is another one of the marketing fortes. But you're in the sense that you want to appear the same to everyone. You want your passion to come across. You want your expertise to come across, you know, whether you're in um, Instagram or in uh, Facebook or on LinkedIn or in the courtroom. It's your same profile should be pretty much the same profile. Now, having said that, I also recommend when you're publishing social media that you have different photographs for different for different websites. So Facebook, you, your photograph should be a lot more accessible. LinkedIn, it should be more professional. 
you know, I mean, we're talking different sites for different purposes. So your profile ultimately will be the same, but you'll present it a little differently depending on where you are. Um, but yes, you're absolutely writing and right. And your writing is part of your profile. Absolutely. No question about it. So keep in mind, again, publishing translates to scalability. People can read your published ideas and get to know your story from anywhere in the world today. In the age of Google, um, of the, uh, you know, the Google search and, and social mention and talk walker, getting your message out and spreading it far and wide is amazingly easy. So um, the public assumes that if you're publishing, in order to write a book or a blog or a, an article or whatever, that you must have some expertise and you are the expert, even if you're a law student. You know, I mean, I remember, don't get me going on my stupid resume because I've done this for so long. I don't even keep track of everything I've published, God forbid. But um, I did for a long, long time until blogging became a thing because you know, articles here, articles there, articles over, you know, over on the, on the third place in the third magazine, those all made sense. Um, it was much harder to get published in the old days. It's interesting that you say to find, or that they'll find your story because what's, because when you read a book, you start from the beginning right, and then you go to the end. But when they're finding your story, your professional story, your personal journey, they're going to find it at any point in time. And they still have to be able to follow it. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, I talk about that idea to a small degree in pitch. When you're constructing your social pitch, there are basically seven elements to your social pitch. And I recommend that people memorize their social pitch. But when you actually are at a cocktail party, giving your cocktail pitch, your social pitch, People can ask you questions, so they may hear different pieces of your pitch, not in the same order that you memorized it. So we or we memorize it in a certain order because it makes sense that way. But people ask questions, and they focus on what interests them. So, you know, your story, you have a lot of pieces to your story. The older you get, the more pieces you have. You're absolutely right. It's interesting to think about it that way. Scalability and then how the pieces of your story fit together and how each piece still has to represent you and your profile. I had a, a gal call me from Australia. I can't remember. I, she must not have called me. I, well, she may have called me, even though they're in a different time zone and it's so different, different from ours. I can't remember if she called or it was by email. But um, she got in touch with me. She was interested in whether I had a book. And I can't remember uh, why um, we had connected through LinkedIn, I think, and, and had a common uh, point of contact. She was a collaborative uh, professional. And so she asked me if I had a book, and I said, what practice group are you in in Australia? And she told me the name of the practice group, and I said, you probably have a copy of my book on your bookshelf. She apparently turned around and looked on her bookshelf and found my book. It had been gifted to her that Christmas by someone who bought a copy for everyone in that practice group, 142 copies. And I just remembered the name of the practice group. So even though we are now moving out of the hard copy era into the e-copy era, your hard copies of your materials are still going to go out there. People are still going to buy other people 
gifts and they may buy I have a gal who's writing a book right now Open Palm Press will publish it she uh, is a friend of mine she got a brain tumor and she wrote this amazing book um, that's kind of like Nora Ephron uh, and Irma Bombeck rolled into one she's so funny Um, and so she wrote the book and I'm going to buy 30 or 40 copies of it to gift people at Christmas because A, it's a fabulous book. B, it won't be horribly expensive because we're publishing it ourselves. And I still like hard copies. I still like to be able to make notes and turn down pages and, you know, to to do things like that. So hard copies are, I don't think they're going away anytime real soon, totally. You could still make notes on the online versions. I actually prefer the online version just because you can access it from anywhere. So I don't have to remember to like take my book with me before I leave. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is quite lovely. And I finally broke down and got a book on Kindle on my cell phone. Um, I was going on vacation and out of the country and I wanted to take a bunch of books with me. And so uh, I did and I now have, at any given time I'm reading five books one on Kindle, one on book, is it ebook or there's another app. I have two apps going at the same time. Um, one, uh, well, probably three hard copies also because I have so many. I've got stacks of hard copies waiting to be read that I've accumulated over time. They sort of weigh on me, the hard copies. The ebooks are also cheaper. So whenever I'm on a budget, I can go. Not like, always. Really? No, I was going to buy a book by Suzanne Collins, her newest book. Oh, um, I've read it. It's so good. Yeah. It was more expensive, the Kindle version for me. I don't know why. Um, now, keep in mind that often, at least still, Amazon gives you a digital discount if you make your purchases a certain way. And so the last, I just bought one uh, the night before last and started reading it this morning. Um, It's a dystopian novel. I need to give you the title because I know you like those too. Um, And I paid one penny for it, I think, because I had $3 of digital uh, for free. Or maybe I, I still have a penny left over. I think that's what it is. It was two ninety nine, and I have $3 in my digital, you know, gift store, whatever. Um, so you've always got that, that going for you. But books are, you know, the, the scalability, I can access. If you've got a book, doesn't matter. I could be an Eskimo and get a copy of your book as long as I have a computer. So many people are worried about writing books, but they don't realize that they're writing all the time. That's what a lot of my coaching clients have to find out, and we talk about that. They don't realize, and and I just walk them through that. It doesn't really matter what profession they're in, although most of them are lawyers. And lawyers produce reams of writing because we're writing letters, we're writing emails, we're sending we're writing motions, we're writing memoranda of law, we're writing, you know, all of that. If you write a memo of law because you've got a problem in a case, shouldn't you turn that memo into an article? I don't care how difficult the issue is or how simplistic. You know, we've got a, a magazine here in Hillsborough County, Florida, that the articles are 500 words. Nobody really wants more words than that in one small piece. And those are the easiest to write, single issue, you know, cover the topic, be thorough, not too long-winded, and now you're published. So easy. I've gotten several of my interns published that way. So, you know, if you do a memo of law for me, Madison, 
we'll um, we'll have to turn it into an article for the the lawyer magazine. I actually have a memo of law that I have to do for my legal research and writing class that's due next week. Oh, we'll have to talk about that. Depending on what the issue is, I I might be able. Depends. It's criminal law, so. Yeah, <laughs> probably not then. Although you know, you never know. Is it a is it a current issue? I mean, that's the other thing. People say to me, "What the what the heck do I write about?" Well, you know, first off, you write about your passion, so you know you're probably already thinking that. Um, people go. But a book, a whole book, well, start with blogs. Every blog that you write could become a chapter later or a piece of a chapter. You write a blog about something that happened in your case or what the clients did, um, you know, how mediation went, something like that. And it could be a short blog. But then when you fill in more of the story it could become a chapter. So a blog might be 500 words. Well, blogs can be anywhere from, you know, 200 to 2,000 words. They say that you want a series of fairly short blogs and then a long blog um, because Google likes that. Uh, Didn't used to, but more recently that's what Google's been looking for. And the longer blogs make you look like an expert. So... um, a chapter can be as short as a thousand words. You probably want it longer than that, but I aim my chapters for around 2,500 words. So that's a short blog turned into a really long blog. And people can do that. It's not that hard. So you don't write a book right away. I realized when I wrote my first book, when I realized that I needed to publish a book, I already had a book, Florida Civil Motions Practice. Not the most interesting book in the world, um, published by Lexis, and completely out of date. So you'll find it, but you won't be able to buy it. (laughs) I published that, I think that was 25 years ago. But about seven years ago, I realized that if collaborative uh, practice was going to get out there, people were going to have to do some active marketing. And I realized that publishing was going to get my name out there. So I thought, okay, I've got to write a book. And I thought, oh my God, how the hell am I going to do that? But I sat down and I looked at my blogs and I looked at my writing and I looked at the cases that I'd had and I already had a pile of words. And so I organized the things that I had written into a what made sense as a book and I looked at what was missing from what made sense as a book and I wrote what was missing. So I wrote my first book in four months. Um, just because so much of it was already written, I, you know, that's my practice. I, I wrote about trial cases that I'd already had, mediations that had happened. Um, in fact, in the first four months, I wrote the first two books because I had more words. You know, you want your first book to be 35,000 words or so because when you get done with it, it'll be 50,000 words. With the, You'll have the introduction, you'll have the prologue, you'll have, um, you know, a preface by someone else. You'll have what other people are saying about the book when you actually publish it. Um, and all of those words, your uh, table of ch- contents, you know, all of that adds words. So it, it'll probably end up being more like 50,000 words. So aim for 35,000 words. Well, if a chapter's 2,000 words, that's how many chapters? 18 chapters? 17 chapters? Something like that. Okay. Well, now you're, bi- you're bringing it down to bite-sized pieces, right? 
So I filled in I filled in the blanks, and by the time I got done, I had more like um, eighty thousand words. So I had two books, and I had to divide them up. I actually um, think you have another book, even though you promised that you're not going to write another one. No, I had to promise my husband. He was I had nine books. He goes, "That's enough. You're done." Because we're starting to publish a blog series about serendipity. That's true. And it's kind of. A lot of the entries were kind of like journals of like, oh, I saw this person, and then we had this connection. Oh my gosh, you think that would be a book? Do you think people would read that? I think they would, because it shows how you turn everyday life into marketing. <gasps> oh, jeepers, Madison. <laughs> He'll kill me. Apologize for yeah. me, I'm so but sorry. But I mean, but I mean, you know, it's already, how many do we have now? We already have 52, 54, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm still, it's still happening. We still run into serendipity every day. It shows just how easy it is to publish for marketing. Because this is a journal that you keep. I keep a personal journal. You can turn those into your marketing materials, into books, into podcasts. Yeah, so what Madison is talking about is um, years ago I noticed that uh, the world was very small. It's a small, 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 small world. Um, You know, you run into a friend that you went to college with in another city living in the same building that you live in. It's just kind of surprising, you know, I mean, I went to a small college, 5,000 people in my college, and uh, that was in New Haven, Connecticut, and I'm living in Washington, D.C., and this guy shows up in my elevator, and it's him. And I'm like, he lived across the hall from me in college. I'm like, Todd, what are you doing here? And he goes, I live here, Joran. (laughs) So I started just keeping track of those small world stories or serendipity. They're also serendipity, you know, uh, uh, serendipitous type events. Um, And they do. They seem to all relate to, you know, your pitch, your profile, your uh, your publishing. Somehow um, I didn't realize that when I was keeping track of them in my journal And I don't keep a technical journal. I just started a Word document that I saved and saved and resaved and, you know, just added to. Um, But uh, as we've gone through the entries, you and I have discovered that it really is because, what is it they say? Six degrees of separation. That's what marketing is all about because everyone you know knows another 249 people. And if your pitch is good, then the people you know are familiar with your pitch, they're familiar with your passion, they're infected by your passion, they want to help you spread the word, and they want to help you, but they also want to help their friends. And by introducing you to their friends, they're helping both of you, you both owe them a favor. Um, And that's you know, spreading the word. That's marketing. That's what it's all about. So everyone you know knows those people and spreads the word for you. With the internet now, though, they don't just know like 200 people. They know probably like 5,000. Yeah. No, if you can, you know, that's yet another total um, uh, podcast. If you know that many people on the internet, then the question becomes, how many of the people you know on the internet know you and are impressed with you enough that they um what's it called when you when you post what someone else posted they repost you it depends on which site you're on but on facebook it's a share right 
that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's now you're cooking. Now you're really making that difference. And that's publishing. That's still publishing. When, when someone shares something that you've written on Facebook, you're publishing and they're republishing for you. So that's, um, that's all I think we have time for today on publishing. There's plenty more to talk about when it comes to publishing. So we're not done. Um, but that's kind of the intro to publishing. And uh, we'll talk to you again next time. You've reached the end of another episode of Growing Your Collaborative Practice. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Jorn Jenkins. And check out the Changing the Way the World Gets Divorced Marketing Your Collaborative Practice Toolkit along with her many posters and books at jornjenkins.com. If you love growing your collaborative practice, we'd love for you to follow and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Until next time, see you on the next episode of Growing Your Collaborative Practice.